0: Hello and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand.
1: And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we are covering Graveyard Shift by Stephen King. This is our first Stephen King story, perhaps of many, perhaps not. We shall see. <laughs> uh, this story was published in 1970 and. I don't know. It still feels pretty fresh and relevant to me. And it has a lot of ties back to some old weird fiction stuff. And we're going to be talking a lot about that as we get through the story. I do want to mention before we get into Graveyard Shift that Glenn and I have just covered the first Johannes Cabal story. And this is available on Patreon right now. It just came out. Johannes Cabal is a necromancer. These are a series of stories and novels written by Jonathan L. Howard. And this is the first story that he wrote. And it's really an early iteration of this character. But we were asked to do it by one of our patrons. And so we did. And it's a lot of fun. We have a lot to say about it. And I hope you'll join us on Patreon to check out this episode, especially if you're a fan of this character.
0: Yeah, we really love this story. I mean, it's the only story that we've done so far, uh, certainly on Elder Sign, but almost really across the network that's funny. Uh, funny has just not been something that we've done a whole lot of. I mean, Gene Wolfe makes a lot of puns, but the stories are not comical. They're not humorous stories, necessarily. They're not, you know, P.G. Wodehouse, but with, you know, some fantastical element to it. But that's what we get in the Johannes Cabal stories, or at least this first one that we've read. And uh, there's another one that is, in fact, actually going to be on the, the next Elder Sign ballot. So we may be covering a lot more of these stories uh, in the future, which will be exciting. But uh, let's talk about Graveyard Shift.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed this story. And we'll Talk about our feelings about Stephen King and the, and the story and the discussion. It'll be a lot of fun to talk about how Glenn and I have encountered Stephen King and all of his different cultural iterations uh, throughout our lives so far and, and see how this story stacks up with what we expect of Stephen King. To me, this is kind of a classic Stephen King story. It has a lot of the elements you find in his stories that made him such a popular writer, his working class protagonists scary stuff involving animals, which I think is in a strange number of his stories and novels. And it's just a really tightly written short story, in my opinion. But before we get into a lot of that stuff, we got to go through the recap. So Glenn, why don't you kick us off? The place
0: is Gates Falls, Maine. The year is 1970. It's June. It's hot, very hot. A guy named Hall is working the graveyard shift at an old mill manning the picker machine. Hall is a drifter. Over the last three years, he's been a college student at UC Berkeley, a busboy in Lake Tahoe, a stevedore in Galveston, and uh, it is hard not to laugh while saying stevedore thanks to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Hall's been a cook in Miami, and he's been a taxi driver in Wheeling. And now he's here, at least until the winter time. And he doesn't mind the job. He's mostly left to his own devices on the graveyard shift. He just has to run his machine with really out a lot of oversight from bosses. But the one thing he doesn't like is all the rats, even up here on the third floor. When work is slow, he throws beer cans at them. And that is what he is doing as our story opens. And contrary to the unspoken rules of the graveyard shift, his boss, uh, the foreman whose name is Warwick, has come upstairs Warwick lays into Hall about the fact that he's not running his machine, the fact that he's throwing beer cans at rats. Uh, But then he explains that he's here because the mill normally shuts down over the week of the the 4th of July. And that means that Hall is not going to get paid for a few days. But Warwick has some extra work that he thinks Hall might be interested in. And that work is to clean out the basement of the factory, something that has not been done in a dozen years. And uh, not having done that in a dozen years is maybe in violation of some local ordinances. There's a sense that there's some external pressure on the mill here to get this task done. Of course, Hall is up for it, and obviously, going into the basement of a rat-infested factory in a horror story is not going to go well. So that is what the story is going to be about. But I really love this opening where King gives us a, a real glimpse of what it's like to work this night shift at a function that itself seems devoid of any meaning for you personally. And I especially like the way that King shows us how the the two workers we meet in this opening section—I I didn't actually mention one of them—try to slack off. As much as possible. All of this rang true to me. Uh, And you and I have worked this shift at the same job before, and we have seen most of this behavior. I mean, not so much the throwing beer cans at rats, but like all the rest of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. King does a really good job of capturing the mentality of a person who likes working Graveyard Shift. As you said, Glenn, you and I have both worked this shift doing the same job. And it was my favorite shift because mostly what people who are drawn to these sorts of jobs, these sorts of shifts, one is to be left alone by bosses or the kind of daytime office politics that that rule the day shift in any given organization and i preferred working nights for exactly this reason when i was doing shift work but Here's the problem with it. It it does make one a little overly sensitive to any type of authoritarian intrusion <laughs> upon your work or lack of working throughout the night, and it really only helps contributes to a person who might have issues with authority in general. I'm not saying you or I know any of those people or are even those types of people <laughs> ourselves, um, but definitely working the graveyard shift makes it that much harder to stand anybody. Checking your work at any given time and and Hall is a character that experiences this like directly, but you know it makes me wonder if we're going to see any problems with authority come to fruition or meet a grim end rather in this story
0: right I mean that's certainly one of the the two thematic elements that gets introduced right away here that's one of them, and the other is you know it's the rat
1: right, and Stephen King does a great Stephen King also does a great job of setting up the story here in this first section, which is really kind of the first shift, uh, which is how the story is structured. It's broken out into these time logs, almost. Stephen King shows us that the protagonist, Hall, has a real history. He tells us all about it. He gives us a glimpse into the economy of the time, the concerns of the working class in a dying factory town. As I said, in setting up this story, this is all pretty classic King Many of his protagonists are just working class people, and I think that his sense of the average American or the American struggle is really part of what made Stephen King and continues to make him such a such a popular writer. He's not writing about fallen aristocrats who have their de- decrepit estates and nothing else, and he he does have a little more on his mind. Stephen King does by bringing horror to people who. May or may not deserve it. And I don't mean horror stories to the audience. I mean horror to people in our community that we think are already down on their luck enough. They shouldn't have to encounter anything more. And I think this is a big part of what makes King so popular. There's also one more thing I want to say. Uh, Warwick, who is the foreman and kind of the boss that, that comes to bother Hall here starts calling Hall College boy, because he went to college. And every writer, you know, has their own mark of their craft, which, if they become popular enough, imitators will try to put that into their work in order to show their influences or as their early writers trying to find their voice. I've read some self published and indie horror published novels, uh, other novels that have been self published or with small presses as well. That have been clearly influenced by Stephen King's concerns about the American working class and stuff like that. And every single one of them seems to have picked up this habit of calling people category based names as insults or identifiers. And this college boy like jumped out to me the same way some bad habits of H.P. Lovecraft's jumped out to me, jump out to me when I read him. This is just not for me as a stylistic choice in part because of the way I see people imitate it and misunderstand what King is doing when he's having characters call other people names like College Boy. But I do think King kind of makes it work here because it shows us that Warwick is a jerk who doesn't care at all about Hall or maybe any of the employees that he is responsible for. And he's actually just a person who is looking for a sobriquet to give someone else rather than using their name because he wants to dehumanize him. So fine, this kind of works in this story. And it also really works in the film Session 9, which is another Stephen King-inspired horror movie that I really, really like.
0: Yeah, that's in fact got a lot of the same sort of skin, some of the same DNA as this story as well. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed out the class tensions here. It is, I think, a big part of what's going on. It is a big part as well of the Lovecraft story that this is riffing on that we're going to get to in the discussion. I do want to point out before we move on that it is interesting to me that even though he's clearly a member of of the working class and is proud of that and we can tell that by the fact that he uses college boy as a as an insult but the foreman's name is Warwick, which is about as an aristocratic of a, of a name as you can, you can get, right? And I think that that is intentional, and we'll talk about all of that in the discussion. But at this point, we are ready to really get into the plot of this story. So that opening scene happened on Friday, and King breaks this story into sections that are designated by day and time. So the rest of the story is going to take place between the Monday and the Thursday of the week of the 4th of July. The particulars of the job cleaning out the basement are these there's a lot of junk down there that needs to be removed. And that's what Hall and uh, Winskonski, that's the the other guy who gets yelled at on the the graveyard shift. Hall and Winskonski are going to be doing this with uh, some little electric dump trucks. But the genuine cleaning part of the job, as as opposed to the picking up part of the job, that is going to be done with serious business hoses that could uh, devastatingly injure somebody. We get that called out in dialogue. So, you know, that's probably going to go just fine. That's not coming back. But now that that's out of the way, we can get to the basement. And it's uh, it's going to be pretty awful down there. Here's how Hall thinks of it. And I, I love this description. Here's what he says. The place looked like the shattered nave of a desecrated church, with its high ceiling and mammoth discarded machinery that they would never be able to move. Its wet walls overgrown with patches of yellow moss and the atonal choir that was the water from the hoses running in the half-clogged sewer network that eventually emptied into the river below the falls. I just thought that was a beautiful description. And of course, in addition to all of this, there are the rats. There are more of them down here than up on the third floor, and maybe even hundreds or possibly thousands of rats down here. And they're also bigger. One of them has even attacked Hall. It's tried to, to bite his, his boot, which, you know, fortunately was, was sturdy enough to withstand it. And another guy working the carts, though, a guy named Ray, he's bitten by a rat that is as large as a, as a cat. And this bite is so bad that Ray needs medical attention. And he's just off the, off the job here at this point. And this is what we get of, of Hall thinking about the rats down here. He thinks, the rats seem to have forgotten all about men and their long stay under the mill. They were impudent and hardly afraid at all. And it's almost as if they're rejecting the authority of humanity and we've seen that you know rejection of authority is already a theme here in in, in the story and I'll say too that I, I love how King is using this imagery of a desecrated church and rats that don't know their place in the natural order of things I mean we might even think of it as the god-given order of things he's doing all of that to ratchet up the the tension here as he builds his setting and builds his mood right the actual contours of the story are not clear to us yet but the mood
1: is. Yeah, I think a lot of what King is up to here is updating tropes of this genre of the weird tale. Instead of an estate that has fallen into decay, as I kind of mentioned earlier, we're treated to a behind-the-scenes look of a factory that is just about falling apart. And he's able to make this type of trope feel fresh because, one, this is our past now in the present. This is what we know of American history and American manufacturing. But it's also contemporary to what's going on to some of his readership as well, the same way the failing aristocracy was contemporary to a lot of horror stories that were written in the gothic horror mode, which is really about as far back as horror goes as a genre. So I, I think it's actually quite interesting to approach this story as a, as a historical artifact in the history of the genre, because I think King is really up to something here and is quite, and is going about it in, in quite a clever way. Yeah, I'm really glad you read that paragraph. I had that same paragraph demarcated to read if you weren't going to, because I just think it's a brilliant bit of descriptive writing. What really jumped out to me was actually a part of the first sentence, which is the bulbs couldn't banish the 12 year darkness, which I just think is such an evocative statement. I mean, darkness and light are sort of natural categories. They shift trying to flashlight anywhere, but calling something 12 year darkness really lays on the serious nature of this place having not been visited by anybody who can bring light to it for the past 12 years and i just think that was a that was a particularly strong descriptive uh, phrase i also want to comment on the attitudes that king imbues his characters with here as they're cleaning up wiskowski's in particular really jumped out to me he's really concerned about how this labor this cleaning up and hosing down of the basement speaks to his masculinity. And this is really the only section of the story that we see labor and gender being kind of caught up in that mentality of these characters. But Warwick thinks that this is not work that a man should do. And he maybe thinks it's not work that any human should do in particular. But it does speak to the sense of masculinity in decline as these manufacturing jobs are failing. And these people's identities are caught up in being a man and getting the factory job and, and going to work and running the machine. And the reason why it jumps out is because King puts this sort of commentary, uh, which is very brief, in contrast with how the other men describe Ray, who was bitten by the rat, screaming like a woman. And what they basically say is, Ray screamed like a woman here, but we're not going to make fun of him when he comes back to work because this rat was crazy. Um, And it just... I think is a brilliant bit of contrast in writing that he put there to emphasize how bad the rats are. I I just thought that was a really interesting bit of technique he used.
0: Yeah, there are some other places where gendered language like that is going to show up, and this certainly was the, the parlance of the '70s. This certainly is. We're not really maybe that far away from the, the the time when the worst insult that you could give to a male would be to say that you have attributes that are are feminine, right? The the worst thing you can say to a man is that you are being womanly in this moment, and and King has that on display here as as a, a real fundamental part of not just not just the culture of these guys, but of the way they interact with each other, their whole relationships. Is as far as we can see, them here are almost based on masculine posturing. Here, uh, hard to hard to posture when you're getting attacked by like cat and dog sized rats, though, as we are going to see. Well, now it is Wednesday, and Hall is on hose duty. Uh, a massive foot long rat attacks one of his coworkers. It bites his chest and, and just clamps onto him. Others are attacked too. And they take the hoses to an area where some rats are hiding. This is an area full of discarded 19th century equipment and huge, just massive rats come running out. And this is really horrifying to the workers. And some of them threaten to quit. But because this is not a union factory, the the foreman, Warwick, uh, threatens to fire them from their regular jobs if they don't keep working this extra job that they've volunteered for. On Thursday, Hall's back with the the dump trucks, driving around these dump trucks. He's on pickup duty, not cleaning duty anymore. And the rats actually seem to have disappeared at this point, which Hall regards as a kind of mystery because they couldn't possibly have gone into the walls because those are saturated by water from the the river. So where did they go? And as he's musing about this with Wiskonski, a huge bat dive bombs them. And here King reminds us that, you know, bats are basically just rats with wings. Uh, This is, you know, it's probably going to come back. But the real element of this scene is that Hall discovers that this basement they are in is not actually the bottom floor, the bottom level of the mill. There's another basement level beneath this one. And probably that's where the rats have gone. And look, we're definitely going down there because, right, we have to. That's what the story is. But King makes this actually a point of conflict in the story, which I think is a great storytelling move. So Hall reports his discovery to Warwick, the forum, but Warwick doesn't care, right? The job was to clean the basement, not the sub-basement. And here, Warwick actually kind of puts on his own identity as someone with bosses whose authority he's trying to avoid as well. But Hall explains that off-page, he's been reading up on the zoning laws of Gates Falls, and it turns out that there is a serious business ordinance about rats. And he threatens to go to the town council about this rat problem if Warwick won't go down to this sub-basement, this bottom level, and exterminate the rats. And I have to say that I was actually thrown by this development in Hall's character. Uh, Up to this point, I had thought that Hall hated the rats and just wanted to avoid them. But now he seems really bent on exterminating them. That certainly could be a response to all of these attacks. I I didn't really feel that King showed us that journey, though.
1: I think you're right. We're going to talk about Hall's journey in the discussion. I don't want to dive into that too much at this point. But Hall... Hull's character does change. He, he's motivated by the same sorts of things, it seems, that motivate Warwick, which is petty power squabbles, um, extra money. So it's not just that Hull wants to exterminate the rats. He thinks that if he can get people to go down there or Warwick to even go down there with him, yes, they're going to see that there are billions of rats in the sub basement, but also they can pretend that they're not there and they'll be skimming off of Warwick's paycheck. He'll. he'll Hall and Wiskonski will basically have Warwick by the throat and then be able to maybe get an extra like $10 a week or something uh from him. And so his motivations really shift here. But we see a couple shifts in characters as well. Warwick, we know he's a jerk. Uh you know, he's been set up that way in this story, but we see him starting out with Hall almost playing buddy buddy with him and like bribing him. He's like, Yeah, come on down, you'll make an extra 75 bucks, whatever. Hey, throw that can at that rat that I just saw. And and he's kind of playing with him because Warwick needs to get bodies down there to clean. So he's trying to get people any way that he can. But Warwick's real character is revealed in this section with his lack of sympathy to the guy who's bit on the chest. That character's name is Ippiston. And so Warwick uses really coercion, almost forcible coercion here, knowing the financial situations that these workers are in to ensure that the crew will stay and work on. As you pointed out, Glenn, he says, you know, if this guy leaves or if anybody tries to leave, they're not just going to leave this thing they volunteered for that I got them to volunteer for. They're going to lose their jobs completely, and I have it in my power to do that. And so it's a really nasty revelation that King just handles really well. Hall's turn of character is something we'll have to talk about, though, because it does not get better. Hall kind of becomes the villain of the piece in some ways as we're as we're going to see I do have to point out one more thing you you did bring up the line where they're asking well where do the rats go and you know whatever character is like they don't go into the walls so there are no rats in the walls this is definitely not a story <laughs> called the rats in the walls uh, and we're going to talk about this in the discussion this story on a major level, is a massive homage, or at least it got its inspiration from my favorite Lovecraft story, which is the rats in the walls. And I just want to point that out because at this point, King is just admitting it with this line. Uh, and, And one of the things we'll talk about is how King might be updating and playing with uh, Lovecraft story yeah absolutely
0: that's one of the things I'm really very excited about in fact as soon as I started reading this story I didn't know what this story was you know we threw it on the, the the patreon poll and it got elected I hadn't ever read it before there's a movie too it turns out that I just never saw I never even saw a poster for and as soon as I started reading this I went oh man I wish we had done rats in the walls on the show already but you know that's just not what the project is and when we do rats in the walls I don't know this story will it will influence uh, how we read that too and we'll make for some good discussion all right Well, it is time for the climax of the story here as we descend into the sub-basement with Hall, Wiskonski, and the foreman Warwick. And to do this, they have to use a a trap door that had been locked long ago and locked up in such a way as to keep people from getting out of the sub-basement, not to keep people from getting into the sub-basement. So that is ominous. And there is a question here then of who locked it from the inside to begin with and what happened to that person. There are definitely rats down there. They can they can hear the rats, but they don't actually see them when they first get down into the the, the final basement level here. What they find instead is a huge wooden box with white letters on it that says Elias Varney, eighteen forty one. And the thing is, the mill wasn't actually built until eighteen ninety seven. So this sub-basement that's down here uh, has been down here for a very long time. It predates the mill. That is, is, is creepy and ominous as well. But there is actually no time to dwell on that because this whole thing, it turns out, has been a trap. So while these three guys have all been looking at this box, might be a coffin, I suppose. I don't know. I expect we'll talk about that at some point. But while they've been looking at it, the rats have surrounded them. But the rats don't attack. It's more like they're hurting them somewhere. And they pass some old human remains, green with mold, and they see that the rats down here are are truly massive. Some of them are are, are three feet high. And there are also bats. And, and some of the rats have this weird mutation. They've, they've gone blind and lost their back legs. And the whole thing is really just described as a, a grotesquerie. And Wisconsin, he just cannot take it anymore. And he just turns and he bolts back to the trap door. And so now we're down to just two workers, Hall and the foreman Warwick. And so with that said, we now come to the last scene. Hall and Warwick find the source of the rats. It's a huge female rat described as a magna mater. This is uh, uh, ancient Mediterranean religious language, great mother. Uh, King describes her as pulsating gray eyeless, totally without legs, and a huge and nameless thing whose progeny might someday develop wings. And when they see this, Warwick screams, and he turns to run as well. But Hall turns the hose on him, and he just hits him squarely in the chest and knocks him back into the rats and into their queen. And this kills him. And now Hall turns to run. But it turns out that he has made a terrible mistake, and he doesn't make it. And so we get a coda a little while later from the point of view of the other workers who hadn't gone down into the, the sub-basement. And they decide that now that no one has come back except Wisconsin, they better go down there to check on their co-workers. I mean, it's just a few rats, right? So what the hell?
1: Yeah, the real ending of this story is that the other workmen died too, and maybe Wisconsin the only one who makes it out alive. <laughs> the The mistake that Hall made that you mentioned was bringing a cloth uh, hose with a nozzle down into this basement with the rats. And you know, King has expertly laid this trail of breadcrumbs throughout the story where he shows that the rats basically chew through and eat through everything. This 19th century furniture's destroyed with rat bites. There's the bags in the mill that are destroyed with rat bites. There's newspapers and all this sort of stuff. So basically Hall can't use the hose as a weapon to push the rats away and he gets devoured as well. I think what King is really doing here at the end of the story – and and this goes back a little bit to what we had narrated – to what you had narrated before, Glenn, is really pointing out and exploring the power dynamics between the employer and employee – Hall's victory here is really that of a citizen and not of an employee. He appeals to the town ordinance, the fact that he can go to the town commissioner and let them know that there's this rat infestation. And that's going to make the board of trustees for the mill like have to change all this stuff. And the factory is already in really bad shape. So the fewer people that go in there and really see how bad the working conditions are and how bad these basements are, the better. And It made me really wonder if people's identities are caught up in this sort of reality at all today, or if this is just like an artifact of the 70s or the 20th century in general, that people's sense of being an employee isn't all they are, that they can also appeal to their local government or state government or whatever. And it just really jumped out to me as, again, that viewing this story as as an artifact of horror, but also an artifact of its time, really points out how different things are in our society versus back then. And the way that King explores power dynamics here and his the way he has his characters appeal to authority and various authorities is very different, I think, than how we would approach this story today. But even given all that, I'm not sure what we're supposed to make of Hall committing murder at the end of the story here. Yes, Hall does get his just desserts, but King's choice to have Hall commit this act to kill Warwick turns him from the sympathetic workman with a sort of uh, workman sense of civility or uh, appeal to the local government or something like that into a murderer. So I think that's really what we have to talk about first. Is the end of the is the end of the story before we get into a bit of a more broad and general discussion. But as I said, I think the end of the story is caught up in what King is exploring with power dynamics in the story. So Glenn, really, what do you make of what King is doing by having Hall turned into a killer and then killing Hall off? How does this contribute to the commentary that King is really engaged with in this story to begin with?
0: Right. This certainly is not the direction I thought this story was going to go when it started, right? When we get this conflict or really when the story begins, right? Hall is our point of view character. He is our protagonist. We sympathize with him. We feel for him because his boss is is kind of a jerk, breaking the unspoken rules, is bullying him, you know, making fun of him, giving him this terrible nickname, and just in general being kind of a jerk right we don't like warwick we like hall and that's the story that we're we're following as warwick bosses you know as warwick is overseeing this entanglement with these Terrible mutated rats, and the expectation is that he's going to continue to be the bad guy throughout the story. That his decisions are going to jeopardize the the workers and get them killed, and that if anyone's going to stand up to him, it's going to be Hall, and and something like that is going to happen. But in fact, the reverse happens. Warwick actually is the one who says, uh, "Let's not go down into that sub basement where all of these rats are. We've fulfilled the letter of our mission, and let's just do that and go home. Everyone will get paid, and it'll be great." He's the one who's actually being sensible all of a sudden. And Hall suddenly then is the person who is kind of crazed here and becomes the villain at the end. I mean, the real horror in this story is not actually the rats, it's Hall. Uh, You said that, you know, the story ends with the suggestion, the implication that the workers, these other workers are going to go down there and also get killed. I don't think they are. I think they're going to go down there, see what's up, and get the heck out because the death that's down there is not the rats. The death that's down there was Hall as the murderer. And I was really surprised by that. And I'm not quite sure what to make of it, but I do wonder. I mean, this is the big thing I was looking forward to talking about with this story because I don't have good ideas about it. Do
1: you have a good reading of this? I don't know if I have a really good reading of it. I do think it's going to contribute to our conversation about how, how we compare this story to The Rats in the Walls by St- by H.P. Lovecraft and what King is trying to do to update the genre or take the genre in a direction You know, this story has to be read on some level as a reaction to Lovecrafts and other earlier forms of gothic literature. But you know, I can't prove this next statement, not yet, because I have neither the funding nor the time to do so. But this story feels kind of quietly revolutionary to me in terms of the horror genre in the same way that Arthur Miller's death of a salesman was revolutionary to the genre of tragedy by showing that tragedy just doesn't have to be about kings being brought low, but that all human beings are capable of experiencing these things. And the pathos of the story doesn't rely on the class status of the person who is committing or experiencing these acts. And so maybe now's a good time to kind of bring in rats in the walls by H.P. Lovecraft, which is a very classic sort of gothic story. And Lovecraft is updating that form of gothic horror to the post-World War One, the tragedies of World War I. King is doing something similar here by saying, hey, the things that happen in horror literature don't just have to happen to people in these... Lofty statuses, even working class people that we like to think of as heroes or as great citizens who know their rights and can fight against the man in these ways. They're still capable of having, of being pushed over the line and doing something terrible. So I'm not, I'm not sure like where King's sympathies lie in terms of like a class struggle or an economic struggle in this story. But I think in terms of genre, he's trying to do some real updating. And I think it's, he's doing a lot more than maybe even I had given credit given him credit for before really reading this story. Well, since we
0: have not actually covered rats in the walls on the podcast, let's. I'll. I'll just give like a really little prissy here, a little synopsis of that story, so that we can. Uh, we can at least be on the same page. So Rats in the Walls is about uh, an American man whose son dies during the First World War. There's some family money that uh, that he has, uh, but this tragedy of losing his son just destroys him. And so he packs up and leaves America and goes back to, to England, to the ancestral homeland, and in fact, gets some estates that he thinks of as being his ancestral estate. At any rate, it's not really maybe all that clear that they actually are, and needs to have them restored because, in fact, they've been. Afflicted by, you know, gothic literature. They have fallen and crumbled and need to be restored. And in the act of doing the restoration and exploring the estate, they discover that there are ruins underneath the estate that go all the way down. I mean, just deep, deep underground. And of course, everything is crawling with rats. Uh, And this all really kind of starts with an obsession with hearing rats in the walls of the estate and trying to to figure out where they're coming from and so on. And, And at the bottom, they discover an ancient Temple that suggests that the the family history is extremely dark and disturbing. Like the types of rituals, the types of sacrifices that were being done and being offered down there are truly, truly horrifying. And along the way, one of the the characters who's doing the exploring of the estates uh, turns a little evil and uh, uh, starts getting a little murdery.
1: Yeah, that's right. And the sorts of discoveries that they make also make. People mad in classic Lovecraft fashion. And this story is following a similar thing. I mean, Hall, who Hall, the protagonist who hates rats, maybe is being a little, is driven a little mad by only seeing the night, like the night and never really seeing the day and by doing this work. And can you imagine? I mean, just hating a creature a lot, like a rat. And then you're asked to do a job, and everything you do in that job just exposes rats jumping out at you and they're like attacking your co-workers and friends. I mean, that might drive somebody mad, but King doesn't explore that madness in the same way that Lovecraft does. He doesn't write about his characters going mad, he just shows them going mad. I don't know if that quite works in this story, because Hall's Turn of character feels a little unmotivated, as as we've discussed. But I, I'm just wondering, you know, just to continue this conversation a little bit more. What other comparisons do you see between this story and Rats in the Walls? And what, what do you think King is really trying to achieve by writing this homage? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, answer the first question first. And this is one of King's earliest stories. In fact, this might actually be his earliest publication. It is certainly the earliest uh, publication date that we have here in, in Night Shift, the volume that we've read it from. So it's certainly one of, if not actually his very first publication. This strikes me as a young writer. Trying to hone his craft, right? He's taken a story that he really loves, "Rats in the Walls," and has said, "I'm going to update it, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to update it for a different setting, and I'm going to update it with different storytelling techniques, much more, much more character introspection, much more character dialogue, and so on than we ever get in 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 Lovecraft, and see how that works." And he's done an extraordinary job of it. I wish all of my attempts, all of my practice sessions, my attempts to sort of riff on another story in order to just get some practice in and see how stories work turned out this well. But I think that's really the big thing that King is, is doing here. But in terms of other parallels with Rats in the Walls, I, mean, I think you have nailed it with the way that both of them deal with, with class. Uh, there's a big deal in Rats in the Walls about the fact that this man who has lost his son feels like he is an aristocrat going home uh, the reason the family is in America is because they had fallen on hard times and had to emigrate and had to labor and he now finally has made back the family fortune that was squandered you know a century and a half or two centuries ago and he's going to return to the the homeland and reclaim his right as his rightful place in among the the aristocracy of of England but it doesn't go well, right? That's, and there's there's some sense there that this is like a real hollow pursuit, that a lot of his motivations are about his loss and so on. And here, you know, we get that kind of flipped on its head, that we don't have that type of uh, what we have here instead are people who are interested in making an, an hourly wage. They're, in, they're concerned about what's going to happen because they don't get paid for a, a week and so on. And so very different concerns. And King really is, you know, bringing horror, as you say, you know, out of the aristocratic estate. And into into the, the workplace and into the lives of regular people. But one of the things that really jumps out at me here is that this is a story that is taking place in the middle of Vietnam and does not at all have anything to do with the war. The way that Rats in the Walls is really a response to the First World War and that the, the First World War, the tragedy of it is at the core of that story. All of that is missing here.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point. It really didn't even occur to me that this it would be That this story has anything to do with war or Vietnam. I suppose maybe the reference to College Boy is something along those lines. But what, what King is really engaging here with is the manufacturing crisis that kind of began in the, in the 1970s. Um, and the way some of these mill towns were just in absolute disrepair and, and on the edge of devastation and, I think a structural similarity between this story and the rats and the walls is that the descent through these structures is a kind of descent through a a broken history that that exposes one how much history is lost in general, <laughs> you know, when people build up and and are trying to restore and repair and replace uh, old things, um, but also how this descent through history this walk through time sort of downwards exposes maybe things we don't want to know about our past and that that's clearly in this story we don't really know who this character is that owned the land before the mill was built all these other mysteries are in place but whatever it was there was some inclination that something about the past needed to be needed to be locked up in order to keep everybody safe, and there's that sort of sense of history uh, that Lovecraft is also a big fan of dealing with as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One of the key features of Rats in the Walls is that we get this like architectural slice section of the of the estate as they're doing these excavations and and renovations, and then investigating for the rats, and that lets us see the history of England, the whole history of England, and much is made of the pre Christian past and the pagan rites and rituals and how horrific they at least could be, if not necessarily always were as as the locus of horror in that story. And we do see something like that here too, where we are descending through the layers of the factory and learning about its past and learning about the town's past Though so the scale is significantly smaller here. But there is this mystery down at the bottom. Who is Elias Varney? Uh, is he the bones that are in skull that are covered with moss down here was this actually a coffin uh is was it his body that was locked down here for some reason and what reason would that be in uh, uh in a town that also has mutant rats
1: yeah it's great and I think King does a great job with this and I hope we've piqued everybody's interest in reading the rats in the walls and, and thinking about how King has adapted that story really for a contemporary time frame I hope I've Convince people to read Stephen King who haven't because this story kind of surprised me. But at this point, I do want to just talk about because this is our first Stephen King story, your and I's relationship with Stephen King as a writer or cultural figure. Uh, So this is going to be a little bit lighter here. Glenn, what do you remember your first encounter with Stephen King being? And at the end of the day, do you think his novels or fiction are things that speak to you more or his adaptations? And then where does this story stack up in compared to other king that you've encountered.
0: I encountered Stephen King in two ways sophomore year of high school and one was the the shining the, the film the shining uh, the Stanley Kubrick film the shining. I guess we have to say now there's been some remake that I haven't seen. This is a film that I love. I mean, you know, lots of people love this film, but my first viewing of it is something I remember viscerally because it did affect me. It scared me. It made it difficult for me to fall asleep. This was all in the context of a, a sleepover and you know in a basement. And that, you know, that's how you should watch that movie. But what I really remember is that one of the one of the the guys at the sleepover and it was actually his house could not fall asleep after watching this movie and was just up all night and was occasionally mumbling to himself and I would wake up from from that and I don't know if he was if that was a game he was playing with us or if he was genuinely terrified but that's one of my uh, one of my that's one of my most vivid memories of all of high school, actually. But the other way I encountered Stephen King was by actually reading one of his novels. My parents actually had a lot of his novels on our shelf when I was a kid, though my parents are the type of people who sell all their books every five years at a garage sale or something like that. So by the time I was in high school, there was only one left, and it was the book The Dark Half, which I don't think is a book that anyone would put even on like their top 30 list of Stephen King novels. But that was the first Stephen King novel that I read, and I've I've read some since, since then as well.
1: Yeah, it's hard for me to remember my first encounter with Stephen King, because I feel like he's always been a a sort of cultural force or like in the cultural background of almost my whole life. Probably the first time I encountered him was when the It miniseries came out. I think I was in elementary school, though I don't remember. Uh, I remember my friend talking about it. And I remember watching some of it. I also remember like TV adaptations of Tommyknockers and The Children of the Corn, which is also a story in the Night Shift co- collection. And I don't think I re- read any Stephen King probably until late in high school when I started reading the Dark Tower series, though I might have read The Stand before then when I was like 15 or 16. But it's just somebody that has always he is a writer uh, and his like, movies and stuff are just something that's always really been in the background. Um, my good friend from the army and I, uh, my first duty station, he and I read all the Dark Tower books together. And that was just an enormous amount of fun. The, the fifth, sixth, and seventh books came out while we were stationed there. And we just pretended we were in that book instead of being in the <laughs> desert of Arizona uh, with not too much work to do. And that was a lot of fun. Um, and then I tried to read other books of his that were connected to the Dark Tower series. And as a novelist, I've always typically I've I found him to be uneven. I think he does some things exceptionally well, um, and some things he does that don't always serve the book. So, like his characterization of the working class people is great, but when it's fifty pages of a novel that's about something else, that's just Tied into the lives of these people that don't move the plot forward. Uh, you know, for a book I want to turn pages on, it doesn't always work for me. But this story, I mean, really stood out to me. And I think other short fiction that I've read of his is, is also pretty good as well. I remember driving home, uh, from uh, Thanksgiving in Ohio with my little sister and listening to another collection of short stories. And I thought they were great. So, Glenn, I mean, t- for you at this point, does Where do you think this story stands compared to other Stephen King you've encountered? And do you think, do you like his short fiction or or novels more?
0: This is actually the first short story of Stephen King's that I've read, but the reason that this wound its way onto the ballot is because I've been told repeatedly by people whose uh, opinions I greatly respect that Stephen King's early short stories are some real masterpieces of the the genre, both of horror and of weird fiction, and that if we're doing a weird fiction podcast, we need to take a look at those. and And that's clearly true. I enjoyed the heck out of this story. I'm glad that we read it, and. Just looking at the table of contents here in, in Night Shift, there's some really, there there are a number of stories I'd be really interested in, in, in checking out. For one, there's the novella Jerusalem's Lot that becomes the, the vampire novel Salem's Lot, which is something that I've read. As you said, Children of the Corn is in here. I've never actually seen that movie, but I know that it's important in the in the pop culture. Uh, you know, eighties movies, pop culture. Anyway, I'd love to check that out. Uh, Lawnmower Man is in here. I mean, there's a ton of stuff in here that uh, I would I would love to check out. So I think we'll we'll be putting these back on the ballot. And uh, this didn't win the vote. You know, it kind of barely made it onto the onto the show. But we'll see how people uh, feel about about doing some more in the
1: future. Yeah, I know. I'd like to read more of his short fiction, and I know there's other great short fiction that he's written out there. And so I hope we're going to be able to do that. But on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha,
0: And I'm Glenn McDormand. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com.
1: Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of Graveyard Shift. I'd love to hear about our listeners' first encounter with Stephen King or what they think of him. I don't think he's like actually a divisive figure on any level in fiction or horror fiction or publishing. Um, but he's such a massive figure that I would love to hear More uh, from our listeners of what they think of him and where they discovered him and how he holds up for them. At the very least, I think you should read Graveyard Shift and let us know what you thought of this story. And
0: you should also definitely check out the Johannes Cabal story on Patreon if you have not done that already. And there are dozens of other bonus episodes up there as well. So next time, we are going to be back with number 252, Rue Monsieur Le Prince by Ralph Adams Cram. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.